As many of you know, uh, today is the day that we are moving, so I'll keep this quick. God loves you. God loves you. I pray that you would love each other. Have a great week. In all seriousness, we are glad that you're here this morning, uh, glad that you're choosing to worship here with us on uh, a beautiful morning, a beautiful rest of the day once the rain passes. Now, we have spent the last four weeks in Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. In week one, we saw Paul suffering under house arrest, but suffering with great joy. Now, how can he possibly be joyful under circumstances like that? Well, the answer is Christ. In week two, we saw Paul challenge the Philippians to practice humility and service and sacrificial love for one another. Why would they do that? Because of Christ. In week three, Paul reminded the Philippians that they are not saved by circumcision or obedience to the Old Testament law or being Jewish or proving their righteousness or ethics or morals or good works. And if all that stuff doesn't save them, then, well, what saves them? Christ. And in week four, Paul urged the Philippians to look ahead to their eternal goal, their ultimate prize, the one who grants them citizenship in heaven. Who is that? Christ, exactly. Everything in this letter and everything in Paul's life comes back to Christ. Likewise, everything in our lives as individual believers and our life collectively as a church should come back to Christ as well. Now, today we wrap up the letter, reading chapter 4, verses 2 through 23 of Philippians. And as we've seen before in Paul's letters, the final chapter can be somewhat easy to read over. It often seems somewhat random, like Paul is just tacking things on at the end that he forgot to mention earlier, mixed in with a few greetings and some hard-to-pronounce names. But in this final chapter of Philippians we see Paul one final time reminding his audience and reminding us of, you guessed it, the centrality of Christ in our lives as believers. But even more specifically, the centrality of Christ as we wait for his return. So open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4, verse 2. Feel free to use the Bibles that we provide if you didn't bring one and take a Bible home with you if you don't own one. But before we pray, let's read our passage together this morning, starting in verse 2. I entreat Eudia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. So do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. 
I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your goodness, your kindness, your mercy. Thank you for giving us your word, a passage like this. As we examine this passage this morning, God, I pray that we would understand it better. But that we wouldn't just understand it, but that we would submit to it. That we would obey it, because that's where things get hard. So, Father, I pray by the power of your Spirit that we would learn to love you, learn to trust you, and thus learn to better obey you. Father, be with us this morning as we finish out Philippians. Thank you for the past few weeks. Thank you for this letter. Thank you for Paul's writings and Paul's example. I pray that you would use these writings and use Paul's example to challenge and shape and mold us to look more like your son, Jesus. We love you. We praise you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in the passage we just read, there are a few things I'd like to make note of right off the bat. And the first thing is the dispute between Eudia and Syntyche. We see that early in the passage. Two women in the church have some sort of disagreement. That never happens. But Paul urges them, with the help of a mediator, to lay aside their differences. As he said earlier in the letter, to be of one mind. Now, truthfully, we know next to nothing about the nature of this dispute. We don't know what happened between these two women. We don't know who the mediator is. And we don't know whether or not they ever followed Paul's guidance. But this vague situation does bring up something we should consider, especially in the book of Philippians. And that's the fact that women played a major role in Paul's entire ministry. Back in week one, we went back to Acts chapter 16, the story of Paul and Silas coming to Philippi. And the church in Philippi started when Paul and Silas found a group of women praying by the river. One of those women was named Lydia, the first woman mentioned in that passage to believe the gospel of Christ. Many people call Lydia the first Christian convert on the continent of Europe. And as a successful seller of purple goods, Lydia was likely pretty wealthy. 
In fact, there's evidence that Lydia may have provided the primary funding and the primary meeting place for the church in Philippi to get off the ground. But then you also look at Eudia and Syntyche, the two women in the midst of their dispute. They are apparently important enough to the church that Paul addresses them by name in his letter, which does not happen often. He asks them to be unified once again because their reconciliation can work wonders in this church. The point is that God used women in significant ways to fulfill his promises in the Old Testament. You go back to women like Sarah. You go back to women like Ruth and Naomi. You go back to women like Deborah. You go back to women like Esther. Women are all over the Old Testament, and God used them in significant ways. But God also used women to build his church in the New Testament, specifically in Philippi. So women, the church needs you. We need your example. We need your gifts. We need your godliness. And we need your unity. Another thing to pay attention to in this passage is the Philippians' gift. As we've discussed already, the church loved Paul. And Paul loved this church. They had a rich partnership in the common goal of glorifying God through the advancement of the gospel. Now, as most of you know, we have partnerships with missionaries of our own. We have a bulletin board out in the lobby devoted to those missionaries. So the question is, how can we better support them? Instead of just receiving some money periodically from our church, what if we sent them a card to encourage them, let them know that we're praying for them? What if you made a point to pray for them on your regular daily routine? I hope the missionaries that we support feel the same affection, feel the same care for our church that Paul felt for the Philippian church. And then finally, one more thing to mention. At the very end of the passage, Paul talks about Caesar's household. He mentioned in chapter 1 that because of his imprisonment, the entire imperial guard had become aware of Christ. But now we read that there are even members of Caesar's own household who believe in Jesus. Caesar, the guy who hated Christians, has Christians walking in his hallways. You never know how big of an impact your love, your godliness, your service, and your faithfulness will have. The impact could be much, much bigger than you think. Paul's love for Christ reached the palace of the most powerful political world, political leader the world had ever known. And God only knows how far your love for Christ and your faithfulness to the gospel could reach as well. Now, those are all worthwhile observations, but for the rest of our time today, I want to really hone in on verses 4 through 13. And there's an important phrase in these verses that everything seems to somewhat revolve around. And that phrase is, the Lord is at hand. The Lord is near. Now, this idea of Christ's return is not original with Paul. Jesus talked about his return on multiple occasions, particularly in Matthew 24 and 25. The Apostle Peter talked about it, too, saying that the day of Christ's return will come like a thief. And this truth of Christ's return shapes so much of what Paul says in these verses and ought to shape so much of our words and our lives as well. So let's read again Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 4. 
Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. There's that phrase. So do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So the first command that Paul gives is to rejoice, the theme of this sermon series. We've seen it time and time again in Philippians that Paul rejoices even in the midst of suffering, all because of Christ. But even more specifically, part of why Paul can rejoice, part of why he can be so confident, is because he knows that Christ will return. Paul knows that because Christ is risen, and because Christ will return, his suffering will not have the final say. One of two things will happen, and they're both glorious. Either A, he'll die before Christ returns and he'll get to be with Christ, or B, Christ will return and Paul will see it in power and in glory. Paul is confident in his suffering because he's confident that Christ will return, that the Lord is near. Then he says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Now, that word translated reasonableness can also mean something like gentleness or mildness. The word is only used a handful of times in the New Testament, but it's always used in the context of relationships, people relating to one another. And that word is often used in the context of public witness, people relating to those who don't know Christ. In other words, because Christ could return at any moment, because the Lord is near, our relationship with those who don't know Christ, our gentleness, our reasonableness, our mildness, our care for them, our relationship with those who don't know Christ is that much more urgent and that much more important. And then Paul says, don't be anxious about anything. You know, we Christians are sometimes guilty of panicking about our world. The latest trend, the latest scandal, the latest controversy hits, and we say things like, well, life has never been this bad before. Our society is going to hell in a handbasket. This is not what it was like when I was a kid, so I bet Jesus will return at any moment. And that could be true. We don't know when Christ will return. It could be later today, or it could be after we're all dead and gone. And on top of that, we shouldn't be naive about the state of our culture. There are problems our society has that Christians should be worried about. We shouldn't bury our heads in the sand. We shouldn't minimize those things. We shouldn't declare, in the words of the Old Testament prophets, peace when there is no peace. However, we're not called to be anxious. We're not called to panic. Paul says not to be anxious about anything because we worship a good, sovereign God. We worship a God who is not surprised by anything. We worship a Christ who is victorious over sin and death and Satan himself. 
And we are part of a church that not even the gates of hell can stand up against. Thus, we have no need to be anxious. In fact, we can be marked by the exact opposite of anxiousness. Reasonableness. Prayer. Thanksgiving. No matter what's happening in our world, no matter what's happening in the Oval Office or our local communities or our own families or even our own lives, we have the peace of Christ that surpasses all understanding. We don't have to panic. We don't have to be anxious. And then finally, you could say that Paul tells us to have tunnel vision. He tells the Philippians to think of the things of God while they wait for Christ's return. Think of the things that God says are true and good and beautiful. Now, of course, that will require discernment. How do we know what's good and true and beautiful? There are many things our world tells us are honorable and just and pure and all the other adjectives in those verses, even though God says they are wicked. So how do we discern that? Well, we have the tools needed for discernment. God has given us his word for a reason. God has given us his spirit for a reason. God has given us the church to teach us and hold us accountable and encourage us that we might discern what really is good and true and beautiful in the eyes of God and place our eyes on those things as well. So Paul's instruction, summed up so far, rejoice, be reasonable, prayerful, thankful, peaceful. In other words, be the opposite of anxious. Think of the things of God as you wait for Christ's return because the Lord is at hand. But as we've talked about before, many of Paul's commands look good on paper, but they're harder to actually put into practice. But thankfully, we don't just have Paul's words to look to in this passage. We also have Paul's example. We saw it in verse 9, but we see it specifically in verses 10 through 13. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So if you put it all together, all the stuff that Paul has described so far, it sounds a lot like contentment. Someone who rejoices, is reasonable, prayerful, thankful, at peace, that sounds like somebody who's pretty content. Someone who can focus their mind on the good and true and beautiful things of God described in verse 8. Content is the word that Paul uses to describe himself. And he's content because while he may be in chains, while he may be hungry, and he may be in need, those Romans can't take Christ away from him. And even in those moments where his circumstances have been better, he knew that all he truly needed all along was Christ. And as long as he has Christ, he can be content. Now, Philippians 4.13 sometimes gets abused, 
sometimes gets taken out of context to apply to all sorts of things that Paul really didn't have in mind. Unfortunately, Philippians 4.13 doesn't guarantee that you can overcome every challenge that comes your way. But it does say that as long as you have Christ, you can learn to be content. This verse probably won't help you score more touchdowns in an NFL game, and it definitely doesn't promise you a carefree existence. But this verse could also be translated, I have the strength to be content in every situation through Christ who empowers me. This verse might not be a silver bullet to make your life perfect, but this verse can teach us something about being content in Christ. So Paul and the Philippians and us as well, have every reason to be content because we have Christ. In spite of the hardships, in spite of the opposition, in spite of the slow grind of endurance and perseverance in the Christian life in a fallen world, we have reason to be content. So then the question becomes, well, am I content? Writer Henry David Thoreau once said, The mass of men live lives of quiet desperation. In other words, the mass of men lack contentment. Is that true? And in fact, let's qualify that question a little bit more. Not just are you content, but are you content with Christ alone? Not content with all your stuff, your success, your financial stability, your relatively charmed life. Are you content with Christ? If you found yourself in Paul's shoes, experiencing the low, the hunger, the need that he talked about, if everything was stripped away but Christ, would you be content? It's a challenging question that very few of us can answer with total confidence. But it's a question that this passage dares us to think about, dares us to chew on. Now, some of us here would say, you know, I'm content right now, but I really can't say for sure that I'd still be content if all I had was Christ. And you know, if you admit that, there's a healthy humility to that admission. However, there may also be some of us here who would quickly say, oh, no, I'm not even content right now, much less if I lost everything. Well, if that's you, I tell you to look to Christ. Look to the cross. Look to Calvary, the way Paul did when he thought everything around him was falling apart. I've recently been reading the book Pilgrim's Progress. Some of you may have read it when you were younger, maybe read it when you were a little kid. But it's a story of a pilgrim by the name of Christian who is going on a long journey. He's leaving the city of destruction behind because he's been told that God is going to destroy that city. So Christian begs his friends, begs his family, begs his neighbor to come with him on this journey to Mount Zion. Come with him on this journey to heaven. And along the way, Christian encounters all kinds of challenges. He encounters his neighbors who mock him and beg him to come back to the city of destruction. He encounters lions who scare him and almost eat him. He encounters enemies along the way who try to sabotage his journey. He almost sinks and drowns in a bog. But eventually, Christian does make it to a house where he finds a bed to sleep in, gets some food, gets some water. 
But when the hosts of the home ask him why he's left everything behind, why he would subject himself to this difficult journey to heaven, this difficult journey of following Christ, that's when Christian responds, why I hope to see him alive who hung dead on the cross. As that pilgrim looked at Christ, everything else fell away. He learned that he would not be content staying behind in his old way of life. He wouldn't even be content with his friends and his family. He would only be content when he was in the presence of the risen Christ. I pray that's true of us as well. Now again, Christ is not some one-size-fits-all solution to avoid hardships and avoid trials. Just ask Paul about that. But when you have Christ, when you have the peace that surpasses all understanding, in the midst of sorrow and pain and suffering, you can still have joy and still have thankfulness and even have contentment in the midst of it as you wait for Christ's return. You think back to Jesus' conversation with the rich young ruler. The man comes to Jesus and he's done everything right. He's obeyed the law. He's tried to do everything he was supposed to do. And yet he knows that something's missing. And so Jesus tells him, well, sell everything you own, give it to the poor, and follow me. And of course, the rich man turns away sad. Maybe you're like the rich man. You've searched for joy. You've searched for contentment in all the wrong places. And you've quickly learned that all of those things are lacking when it comes to contentment. Well, I pray that you would turn to Christ. Because if you are not content... If you don't have the confidence that Paul had, maybe you're lacking Christ. Maybe you're lacking the biggest source of our joy, the biggest source of our contentment in this existence. The Son of God himself, who went to the cross for sinners like us. So this morning, I pray that you would turn your eyes to him. Fix your eyes on Christ, the perfect beautiful, true, good gift of God, and that we would have tunnel vision on him in the midst of our sufferings, and that as a result, we could find ourselves rejoicing, find ourselves with peace that surpasses all understanding. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage Thank you for the reminder, the challenge, that we can find contentment, no matter what's going on around us, but our only hope for contentment in the midst of a fallen world is your son, Jesus. So, Father, I pray that we would fix our eyes on him. I pray that we would rejoice, that we would pray, that we would be marked by thankfulness and reasonableness as we wait for Christ to return. I pray that you would give us confidence that even as we wait, our suffering, our pain, our hardships will not have the final say. They will not last forever. So, Father, be with us on this journey that we're on of this Christian life, through the ups and downs, through the hunger and the filling, through the success and the failure, through the abundance and the need. Father, walk with us. 
Find us faithful when your son returns. We love you. We praise you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.